0: It is two weeks of unbearable pain. It is two weeks of, you know, I hate this. I don't really want to do it. But even though you're feeling that, you're also feeling better. Like internally as well, I started to feel better because I was able to connect with, not just with my community, because you start to see how the city works from a different perspective, but you also start connecting with nature. And then I, I started taking my time.
1: down to you down
2: down. Down to us
1: it's down to all of us together the generations alive today will determine the climate and humanity's future
2: this is down to you podcast
1: the down to you podcast team acknowledges that our work spans many unceded territories and treaty areas We recognize and honor that we are facilitating stories on lands stewarded by Indigenous nations since time immemorial. We are grateful for the traditional knowledge sharers, storytellers, and elders that are with us today, those who have come before us, and the youth that inspire us. Hello, everybody, and thanks for listening to the Down to You podcast. I'm Hollis and I'm sitting with Alex.
2: Hi, folks, I'm Alex, and today we're exploring the topic of the future of getting around.
1: We're going to be hearing from two different youth to kind of understand it a bit better. These youth are pushing their personal and even societal boundaries in an effort to reduce carbon footprint. But before we get into it too deep, what's carbon footprint?
2: The
3: term carbon footprint, it comes from the idea of an ecological footprint. How big is the footprint of your activities on the planet? This is a way of accounting for the emissions associated with the activities you do. Heating and cooling your home, driving your car, what food you eat, what products you buy. So it's a useful concept for trying to say, okay, I want to try to trim my carbon footprint. What are the things
2: I can do? That was Simon Donner a climate scientist and UBC professor who we met with to help us define and understand some terminology we keep hearing around climate and net zero. If you'd like to hear more from Simon, check out our net zero intro episode for a deeper dive into that topic. Transportation is responsible for 37% of BC's total emissions, and 36% of those emissions come from light duty vehicles. That's crazy. That's nearly half of our total emissions from transportation alone. Now I own a vehicle myself, but I also ride my bike and I take local transit and it makes me think about what I can do to reduce the need to use my car. So I live in Vancouver, which has a pretty decent transit network. And I wonder about folks that are in smaller communities that maybe don't have such a reliable bus service, maybe not such fully developed bike lanes. What sort of barriers are there for other folks and what sort of issues come up in other places around BC? It also makes me wonder what sort of infrastructure is needed to ditch the car.
1: Now, let's hear from our youth. First up, we'll be speaking with Paulo Bihit. He is coming to us from Kamloops. He was a student at Thompson Rivers University, and originally he hails from El Salvador. He speaks about his journey with alternative transportation through the lens of a newcomer, someone that has a unique perspective on freedom and privilege.
2: Yeah, he kind of comes in with a fresh perspective, being from elsewhere and being grateful for the freedoms we have here and not taking that for granted. His attitude was that anything was possible and to just do it. Let's get to Paolo and his story. My name is Paolo Bihit.
0: And I was born in El Salvador, which is the smallest country in North America and South America by landmass. We have an amazing population of nearly 8 million people. I grew up in a fairly economically privileged family where we were able to afford a lot of things that allowed me to have freedom. And I think that's what pushes my story to really take a lot of different angles to the idea of what freedom is part of and how uh, privilege is also part of that freedom. I remember not being able to fully acknowledge that I was paying my way to be able to enjoy a level of freedom that a lot of people don't have in, in my country. You know, my parents and my, myself encounter a great opportunity to grow in a different area, but a lot of people are born into that kind of freedom. So obviously, like they cannot identify that it is a privilege because it is part of their society. They were born into it. There's no way for you to acknowledge something until you fully either lost it or are no longer part of that privilege or opportunity.
1: Tell us how you got started on this biking journey that you're on.
0: In one of my classes, it was explained to us that we were allowed to rent a bike from the sustainability office to be able to try out a bike and eventually, you know, buy and and they had like a buy-in program where they'll give you a rebate if you were to purchase the bike through the university. I remember that I took the bike and I started riding and it was just calm. Like whatever preoccupations I had from the idea of, you know, it's going to be hectic, it's going to be a lot of cars and it wasn't there. I was no longer living in the university. I was outside living in the city. And somebody said, you know, why are you going to start biking? You've never really biked this much before. This is something that you're not really going to be able to do. I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to do it for more than, more than a week. So there was a lot of doubt from people because if, for those of you that are listening on this and, and, and aren't fully aware of what Kamloops looks like is Kamloops, I'll say about 60% of the city is in a hill. Kamloops has been determined to be one of the cities that has the most amount of elevation within its downtown core area so between the lowest elevation and the highest elevation there's between 700 to 800 meters i guess that's where a lot of the doubt came to be honest with you i started and it was painful right i hated it going up the hill and i had to go to class i only had so much time to get to class and i really had to rush i got to class i was sweating i was you know dying couldn't breathe i my lungs hurt my heart was pounding. I was sweating. I wasn't ready for that. And I said, well, if I'm going to wait to be ready, then I'm never going to be ready. And because I didn't have any other way to get to school faster at the time I wanted to get to school, because our public transportation only starts to a specific time in the morning, I kind of forced myself into biking.
1: In terms of biking, how is it different here in Canada compared to back home in El Salvador?
0: I ride every day here in Canada, right? I could enjoy something that I've never felt before. And being able to do something that I do now here on a daily basis, it would have been really expensive back home. It was so dangerous for bikers. If I wanted to bike the way I bike here in Canada, I would have had, had to pay maybe a hundred bucks or, you know, 150 bucks for a pickup truck or a car to be driving behind me while I'm riding in my country.
2: You mentioned how challenging it was to start biking. I'm wondering what uh, were some things that motivated you in the beginning?
0: My father always told me anything is possible if you give yourself time to either learn it or work for it. And I think that really emphasizes how biking has been, I think, a core Like I said, it's part of my personality now. Like everybody knows that Paolo, uh, the guy who's everywhere and is known in a lot of places, people start recognizing that you don't have a vehicle. I don't have a vehicle. I don't own a vehicle. I'm not planning to own a vehicle. But it was the fact that I knew that it could only get better. That sensation that I was dying after biking, that sensation that, you know, there are so many hills. It is two weeks of unbearable pain. It is two weeks of, you know, I hate this. I don't really want to do it. But even though you're feeling that, you're also feeling better. Like internally as well, I started to feel better. Because I was able to connect with, not just with my community, because you start to see how the city works from a different perspective, but you also start connecting with nature. And then I, I started taking my time, you know. We find so many excuses and so many circumstances that would say, you know, there's a cloud outside or, or, or like today, there's a lot of clouds out, outside. It's, it has been raining. Did it stop me from biking? Not really. I bike every single day of the year. You know, I was known at university for being the only person biking during winter when it was minus 30. Right. There are pictures of me when it's a snowing, it's minus 30 and I'm wearing my gear completely. Somebody said, well, it's really cold. Not really right? Like it's an excuse. It's, it's cold. Well, Canada's cold, right? It's only really warm in Canada for like six, seven weeks of the year. And then that's it. You dress up for winter when you're riding in the bike.
2: One of my favorite parts of this was just his attitude of can do. No excuses. You know, barriers are only in your mind sort of attitude. He got a bike. That was his way to go to school. He has to get to school at this time. There's only one way to do it. Like whether there's hills or weather and all that, he just made it his only option. And then you just got to do it.
1: Yeah. He's all about removing excuses. You know, you hear that saying that's like, make sure your ducks are in a row before you cross the street or something. And I just realized for myself like if I wait for my ducks to be in a row I'm never going to cross the street and I feel like that's kind of what Paolo's saying here is like you can't wait to be ready to do something you just have to like take that first step nothing can nothing gets in the way unless you decide.
2: Yeah I echo that fully. We grew up riding bikes all the time and Paolo's approach to it really made me think of my dad's approach to hills you love the hill this is awesome like you have to get up to get down sort of thing which at the time as a kid you hate doing the hill but now looking back and it gets easier every time and i appreciate it now hills only get easier the more you do them
1: it's true though Mm -hmm. yeah it's true though
2: i find that in canada people think of cars as being the most convenient form of transportation can you speak on that a little bit did you run into many barriers with only using biking as your form of transportation?
0: I was looking into this job opportunity, which was becoming the Ukrainian coordinator effort for the humanitarian support that has that been given to the, to the people that were fleeing at the time of the war. You are expected to have a vehicle because you had to go and meet with all the people in the community who had shown interest in supporting the cause, right? And at, at any point, you know, I ever thought I need a vehicle to do this, right? It was necessary. It was always required. But I was always able to find a way. Like I said, and if, if anything is possible, then you start thinking, well, there isn't really a bus route near my house. Take the example. I know that another great excuse for people, well, I'm going to have to buy a car because I live so far away from a bus station. I don't really have the time to pay biking. But eventually you start thinking, well, what if? you change the idea of that transportation system of getting to point A to point B, and you start to segment that into point A, B, C, D. And point A and B and C and D, you do that with a bike. And then the biggest chunk of that distance is taken by public transportation. It is as simple as that. And then if you time yourself out, you might actually get there faster than driving.
2: This kind of social convention we have for jobs that a lot of jobs require you to have a vehicle and kind of don't see another way to do the job they just think because of what the job entails you need a vehicle to get around and i like kind of his example of turning that around and saying well i don't have a car so how can i do this job with a bike and he actually just figured out a more efficient way to take the routes i don't know how I to explain <laughs> yeah.
1: I think it's great that he's modeling a different way of life because I would, I mean, I don't know, I've never been a refugee myself, so I can't say, but I imagine if you're coming from a war-torn place and maybe you're not coming here with a lot of money, so having to have a vehicle might be like a barrier, but maybe if you think, oh, everyone has a car here, that's just like, what's normal, push yourself, but, you know, he's showing that there is like other ways of options.
2: Yeah, that's a good way to put it, like modeling, yeah.
1: And then you can use that money for other things that you might need, like for your kids or... I don't
2: know. And whether it's to refugees through his job or just to citizens around town, he's kind of modeling that way of life in his day-to-day commute because he just lives it and reps it.
1: Yeah, rep it, Paolo.
2: (laughs) We asked youth around BC what they're doing to avoid using personal vehicles. Here's some of what they had to say. My favorite mode of
1: sustainable transportation is biking. Okay, my favorite mode is the train. My favorite mode is bus. Walking. Going on the Canada line.
2: My favorite form is probably using my acoustic bike.
1: I walk quite often.
2: Taking the public transportation. I try to do more walking and uh, more cycling as compared to taking a car or a, or a cab or even a bus. I do more walking
0: right? Because we think that driving is the easiest way to get around. I think I have to acknowledge that we've become so comfortable with the way that we live that our cities were built around the idea that we were supposed to be driving. Then we forget that it wasn't the case a hundred years ago, right? But also I think we forget that there's many ways to get in town, Everybody is expected to be driving. This Our city, Kamloops, is built to be driving. But if you think about it, there's 100,000 people in Kamloops. If 100,000 people in Kamloops think exactly that way, and then let's say there's half of them, 50,000 people, are within of age of driving and they think, well, I can get a car and then I can start driving and I can be there in five minutes. Well, wh- what would happen if that was the case? Our streets are not designed for that much traffic.
3: The cars are so heavy, and yeah. they do so much damage to road surfaces. You'd need to have like 35,000 extremely heavy cyclists on ludicrously heavy bikes to do the same amount of damage to a road surface
2: as something like a truck. That's Kyle Ross, the second youth that we caught up with to talk about alternative transportation.
3: Hi, my name is Kyle Ross, and I am the organizer of the Safe Biking for Prince George petition.
2: Kyle's from Prince George, and he's also a cycling advocate, as well as a first-year student at the University of Northern British Columbia. He's rethinking how we design our cities, and he's making changes to how we get around in those cities.
1: Yeah, he shares a pretty different perspective than Paulo. Paolo comes to us from El Salvador, which sounds like a place where safety and freedom are understood pretty differently than they are here in the West. Kyle comes from BC and his story is a bit more reflective of some more local attitudes. And it reminds us that Canadians potentially fear getting on their bikes because it might feel physically unsafe. There's lots of cars on the road, lots of trucks, and potentially a lot of safety barriers to making that switch.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about how you started on this journey?
3: Well, it started out with getting po would by the fact that our cities are not well thought out. And bike lanes can be a great method to reduce carbon emissions in Prince George, because that's something that's a bit of an issue as per the Climate Change Action Plan, where it shows that 52% of all carbon emissions in Prince George are from transportation. So I wanted a way to reduce that. And with inspiration from urban planning YouTube channels, researched articles and peer reviewed studies. And thankfully, being a UNBC student, I do have access to the library's plethora of articles and studies so that I can form an excellent basis of research. All of those. All of those articles all pointed to, why don't you have bike lanes? (laughs) And as much as watching these videos are like, it's like bike lanes are good because bike lanes are good. But why is it good? So that's why I chose bike lanes as a topic, kind of, because it's something that's in town. It's visible infrastructure. It's something that can improve a lot of lives, hopefully. I slowly but surely figured out why it was good. But I, I'm i like, what's a good way to sort of action on some of these ideas? I was like, okay, I'll start a petition to get better bike infrastructure. That would be a good first step to making Prince George a better place. I started that April 14th. (laughs) And I thought it was going to be sort of put it out there, test the waters, see how people feel. It'll be a fun summer project. And then within the span of a week, it was a fun spring project. I was putting posters out up at UNBC. I was told by a friend, it was hey, are you with those biking people? I'm like, I am that biking person. (laughs) Did you know that you have a Citizen article about you? I'm like, what? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's all over the news. And then I'm like, oh, goodness, you better not be lying to me. Pull out the phone, look, sure enough, front page of the Citizen, bike lane petition in Prince George. And I'm like, whoa, check the petition itself, 500 signatures, i'm like wow okay time for me to
2: make a plan and kick it into gear Mm -hmm. on that point of people wanting to implement these changes so many times people just don't have time to take on these initiatives and it showed so many people were appreciative and saying that they'd been wanting this to happen for a long time but just never really were able to take the time to kind of make it happen themselves and goes to show to how pressing of an issue this is. Kind of just started it on a whim. Uh, maybe we should try and petition for some bike lanes, and it just blew up right away because obviously it's a it's an, a bigger issue for the community than maybe is voiced often.
3: I was being bombarded with interviews. Cheryl Jan from CPG CBC interview interview with the Vista Radio stations in town how do I advance this forward? I I didn't know. Recommendation that I got was go present to city council. So I very quickly decided, okay, I'm not sure how long it's going to take for me to get a slot in to go present to city council. So I might as well put that in now. And the date on that I was able to get was May 31st.
1: That's like six weeks. How are you able to prepare in such a short amount of time?
3: I booked that in and nervously awaited. And then, yeah, it was a lot, but it was also not a lot at the same time, because then I'm talking with people that are more familiar with the sort of bike community in town and talking with them by email and having meetings with them and sort of figuring out what they want to see and answering questions on social media. And I guess putting myself out there a little bit more on top of what I was already doing, which was frankly, very terrifying (laughs) on the way down to my meeting I was on my bike and I stopped at the top of a crest and I put my foot down near the edge of the path and it kind of collapsed and I slid down the hill so I was wearing this nice suit and then I was just covered in dust I slid about six feet and <laughs> I'm like oh dusty and awful <laughs> I had to dust myself off in the washroom I, I introduced my city council presentation with that I'm like sorry if I'm a little dusty
2: we were able to get a copy of the recording of Kyle's city council presentation. Let's have a listen.
3: I'm sure many of you are familiar with Prince George's current solutions. The painted bike lane, lovingly referred to as the painted bicycle gutter. Unfortunately, these bike lanes are inconsistent, and they end up being unsafe for the majority of the population. While these bike lanes are better than nothing, the current design does not cater to those that are interested but concerned about cycling, which can be anywhere from 37 to 60% of the population, but usually somewhere around 50% of the population. Additionally, one in every 17 passing events was within one meter in the painted bike lane. This makes biking unviable and unsafe feeling for most. A viable solution, I believe, is adapting the rapid implementation design guide for bikeways in Metro Vancouver to Prince George. These bike lanes are more cost-effective as they use a mix of plastic delineator posts, curbs, and other easily movable cheaper objects to quickly and rapidly build out a bike lane network. There's less time needed to wait for a proper solution as these bike lanes can easily be installed on site by city crews. There's no need for a pilot project. There's been hundreds of pilot projects before, uh, and they all end up with the same information. So what you need to do is build. This solution, however, will be imperfect, but it will be an excellent foundation for the future of active transportation in Prince George. And these bike lanes should absolutely have a focus on making it accessible for all ages and abilities. If the bike lane doesn't work in that location, especially after modification, it can be easily removed and placed elsewhere. Separation is incredibly vital to a protected bike lane, as 88% of those that are interested but concerned about cycling are more likely to ride if there is some form of physical separation. This could be as little as the plastic delineator post mentioned, which will see a drastic improvement in perceived safety and thusly ridership numbers.
4: Road safety is one of my areas of focus. How we approach road safety isn't about driving. It really is our mobility system. And that is your cars and trucks and buses and all these things, but is also all the other ways we get around. And we're seeing over the last few years, there's this explosion in what we call micro-mobility devices and people take them up. Why? Because they're cheap, because they're fun, but fundamentally because they work. Because the reason we do that is because we want to solve a problem. We want to get from point A to point B. We want to do it in a way that works best for us. And we need to be able to do it safely. And with this explosion of the devices, we need to be able to provide the infrastructure for it to happen safely. We need to adapt to a changing world.
1: That was Tobin Copley. He's an injury prevention lead with the Fraser Health. We caught up with him earlier this month to discuss concerns around road safety issues, as well as Vision Zero, a government grant program that we're going to chat about a bit later. But let's hear more from Kyle.
3: Downtown regions can convert existing angled parking to parallel parking and a bike lane. Businesses worried about loss of revenue due to reduction in parking because of the bike lane need not worry, as... It has been found that the bike lane can actually increase business revenue, with the worst-case scenario being a net neutral effect on revenue. Benefits of cycling, of course, it's exercise. So improved cardiovascular, mental, physical health, it's cheap, it's environmentally friendly, it reduces or eliminates car ownership cost, it reduces road maintenance cost long-term because a cyclist is nowhere near as heavy as a vehicle, especially a truck. It reduces noise and air pollution. It has social benefits of actually seeing the people that you know and love in person, and it actually reduces traffic by taking cars off the road. Even if half of the people that signed my, peti- my petition are own a vehicle and drive a vehicle every day, if you had removed half of them off the road, that would be an achievement.
2: Um, one thing from the benefits that he's mentioning, throughout this the benefits of switching to bike as transportation was the road damage thing that's something that kind of gets overlooked and i know i haven't really thought about that much myself but the number of cars you can take off the road translates to weight passing over that road translates to repair costs and the carbon emissions that come from that which is significant and i I just thought that was a kind of a neat tangent to bring up as kind of a benefit to cycling that doesn't get brought up too much
1: and that's also part of cities and city design and i think like bringing that up to council is so important like council would think about those costs to road maintenance more than your average person like but it's not a cost that we see the same way that we see gas or just prices of vehicles and whatnot
2: Mm -hmm. Then there's all these sort of like hidden benefits too that just pop up when you really start diving into the matter
1: um something else i wanted to say about the research and his preparation especially when he's speaking to council is he comes with examples like he comes with solutions And I think that's also really important when you're talking to government bodies. I feel like folks in the government hear a lot of like what's wrong, like the problems.
2: And they're busy enough as it is they are trying to deal with so many things that it's taking so much off their plate. If you present a problem, as well as the solution, as well as where the fundings come from, as well as some research and statistics to back it all up, they basically just have to approve it at that point. We caught up with Kyle after his presentation, and we heard what he thought about it and how things have been going since. It went really
3: well and got it out and everybody's like wow thank you for bringing this to our attention it's something that was also incredibly important to some others city councilors and they were all incredibly in support of what i had to say they so far have passed it along to their finance and audit committee so then they can add bike infrastructure to their capital plan and that motion passed unanimously I was told that once they have the concrete sort of plan and once they have bike infrastructure added to their capital plan, they were going to reach out to my organization to ask for help, I suppose, to make sure that, I guess, review what they're going to build to see if that's sort of satisfactory. If you want to see something, in order to get it done, you have to do it. (laughs) You have to start somewhere. And for me, in my particular case, that was with a petition in order to show how much demand there actually is for it. They want to see that actual people, in my instance, Prince George, want this to happen. And if you want to introduce something, particularly to government on like a local level, be sure to bring receipts, be sure to make sure that your research is well well researched and you go over it a couple of times and make sure everything's okay. and you will have the capacity to answer questions because people will have questions. If you really want to see it, then you kind of got to live and breathe it. You got to make sure that you can be not necessarily an expert, but as well-versed as humanly possible in the subject. And that could be a little intimidating for people. But I found YouTube, as large as it is, an incredible research sort of uh, start to find something or find research that people have cited and have the ability to cite. And then you can cite it yourself. Make sure it's peer-reviewed, too. I found that a lot of people would email me with like, here's, a, here's an extra study, or here's a few extra things, or here's some advice on how you can sort of word this. And people who are passionate about it will reach out to you, and they are incredibly helpful another important factor for making an argument as well to city council is tell them when where when and where the money is because there's lots of active transportation based and like vision zero based grants available that the city can take advantage of
4: Vision of zero is the idea that zero is the acceptable number of fatalities and serious injuries in our road system that really frames the way that you look at the whole landscape, the whole physical landscape, the policy landscape, and you look at it through that lens to not only improve safety, but to build healthier communities, improve community connectedness, improve um, levels of physical activity, people's general happiness and well-being, mm-hmm. um, put ourselves in a better position for reducing the damaging things we're doing for our planet, to the climate. In British Columbia, we have what we call the BC Vision Zero granting program to fund some micro to engage with communities around road safety and particularly around Vision Zero ideas. We actually have a website, it's vision0bc.ca, that highlights uh, the projects we've had over the last two years, also points to resources that um, people can have around road safety. So it is open to municipalities, to schools. It's open to any Indigenous communities, non-governmental organizations, and it can do anything around um, you know, building safer infrastructure. So, for example, we have municipalities might want support in putting in uh, speed humps or uh, flashing beacon lights at uh, pedestrian crossings. So it's, it's a wide, wide range of different things that can be funded.
1: That was Tobin Copley again. Speaking about Vision Zero... And how it's a really great option for folks to come together and apply for some funding to make their community safer.
3: After my city council meeting, I was pulled aside by a few people and they're like, wow, thank you so much. This is something that I've been thinking about for years. And I just didn't, I don't think I have the capacity to do it myself, they'd Mm -hmm. tell me. And they sort of don't have the research backing that I have. So it was incredibly validating in order to sort of speak for this, I guess, unspoken majority
0: Starting a sustainability project, it's a starting a sustainability journey. So there isn't one specific way of doing it. There isn't a step-by-step process that I can do a blog and people can follow my steps and they're going to get exactly the same opportunities and experience that I've had. What is sustainability? You have to understand what areas of sustainability your city is already supporting you. You have to understand what would it take for you to start becoming more sustainable. There's no barriers when you really start looking into how it can happen.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, kind of put it into context of our podcast. The podcast is called Down to You, and I feel like these are two individuals that are kind of taking the climate crisis and bringing it down to you. Paolo is moving through the barriers and blocks of the personal kind of element. And then Kyle's coming at it from a perspective of systems change. But they're just like one person doing their thing and making a difference. And yeah, I'm stoked to amplify their stories and share that.
2: And they go hand in hand. More bike accessibility allows for more people to take on that personal change in their life
1: yeah and that that just makes me think there's like no one solution there's no like one size fits all for example like i love riding my bike but i also have a vehicle that i do need to use when i'm going to events like i take my art to different events and festivals and whatnot so i have a big old van that probably wouldn't pass air care if we still had air care in bc but we got it for a case of beer it was just like a trade and we don't have the funds to buy a nicer vehicle so anyways all this to say like there's no perfect solution like some folks need to have a vehicle for this reason or that reason and don't feel safe biking or don't have the physical capacity to bike or I just want to caution the idea that there is one solution for everybody because I don't think that there is.
2: And jumping into that too like these people are making enormous changes like Paolo rides his bike every single day of the year which is so great and admirable but also to make a change you don't necessarily need to ditch your car only grab a bike only walk or bike everywhere every day even maybe you drive every day to work right now if you switch one of those days a week to biking that's a positive change.
1: Exactly change happens bit by bit piece by piece and um, personally I'm more likely to make a change a part of my life if I can do a little bit at a time. Anything I try and do extreme I end up giving up and going back to my old way. It's interesting how different Kyle and Paulo are, even though they're both like biking advocates. And I feel like part of that difference is where they come from. Paulo's coming from El Salvador, very different cultural context. When he's talking, he doesn't like, does safety come up?
2: I don't think so. Yeah. It's, it feels more about freedom and challenge.
1: Yeah, like the barriers he's talking about are more like personal, like, oh, physically it's hard or it's cold, like comfort levels that you might have that you can push through more easily. And then like safety is one of those comfort levels that maybe you wouldn't be as bold to push through. And maybe that's okay. If something doesn't feel safe, I wouldn't want to pressure someone to do it, you know?
2: Mm hmm. Yeah, Paulo's feels like a lot more personal, a lot more of like an individual life change sort of approach. Whereas Kyle's is definitely more of a, a city view, municipality approach of, um, yeah.
1: Like systems type change. Almost. Systems
2: level, for sure. Yeah. Um, and both important. And I think um, both will resonate with a lot of people. But the safety thing is huge. Even like in my own family, my mom kind of will only ride her bike if they're separated bike lanes. And I think a lot of people are like that. That's a big barrier for people. I know a lot of people who've been riding for years kind of don't really think twice about being on the road with cars and it's not such a big deal, but if you're a little less comfortable and if you're a little newer to biking, that can be a huge issue and just a stressful time. Kyle mentions in his bit that road safety shouldn't necessarily be about driving, but about our mobility system, which I thought was really interesting. So more like a sort of holistic approach of transportation where road safety encompasses bicycles, transit, pedestrians and cars, which is like a a cool way to look at it and a, a way of thinking that we should try and adapt to and maybe change how we approach that because it's been so car centric for a while.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, we haven't had cars for that long, right? So, thinking that that's the only way is limiting. And those micro mobility devices, and that really, you've seen an explosion in the last couple of years, like the scooters and even like not the unicycles, but what are those called? Like, yeah, those the one, one wheel, wheel things. Yeah. Those things scare me. Like, I wonder how they work. I don't know, but I feel like they're great because they solve that problem of getting from A to B but yeah I feel like we really need to as a society like accept them and like kind of evolve to also consider them as like how important they are and make space for make space for more than just cars on the road it makes me think about like when I've traveled when you go other places particularly in Asia like there's so many um scooters on the road like that's like such a more predominant mode of transportation
2: I think the explosion in those, um, what were they called, micro...
1: Micro-mobility.
2: <laughs> Micro-mobility vehicles is nothing but a good thing because they're easy to use. You don't have to be in super good shape or rich or they don't have these barriers that other modes of transportation do. It seems like seeing the increase in that will also kind of see the change in the variety of vehicles on the road, which will lend itself to making the roads more all-inclusive and mm-hmm. seeing more bike yeah. lanes and separated lanes pop up paolo i did think he had a lot of good points just about all the benefits of biking some of them are pretty obvious but then i also liked how apart from his own contribution and his own benefits from biking he was kind of sharing that philosophy with others just by being out there and being visible and kind of sharing the gospel of that type of transportation um
1: Yeah, I feel like that's something that is big in his story is almost like planting seeds of change a little bit by his actions. You know, you might just think, I'm just one person. What can I do about climate change? Like, how many emissions can I really impact? But I also think it's about the impact of spreading that kind of seed, planting that seed with other people and like how that can kind of like ripple effect out. And he says this, and I really agree that you see your community differently from a bike Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation that he makes.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something I hadn't really thought of much biking, even though I'm a big advocate for that mode of transportation. The social aspect, just seeing people face to face, maybe saying hi, maybe not, but just being out in your city.
1: And when you're out on your bike, it's like often that you'll see someone you know, and it's nice. These days, I feel like we all have our own little worlds that we go to. Some of us work online now more than ever. So sometimes the only places you see people is social media or like online and it's not the same. So I feel like that's a benefit of biking is you can actually run into someone you know. And if you can take a moment to stop and chit chat on the street, like kind of old school styles, that's how it feels.
2: Totally. And even if even if it's just a smile and a wave kind of uplifts you for the rest of the day, even just small things like that.
1: Something else which I feel like is a good thing to bring up is we've grown into this idea of comfort. Getting from A to B, you get in your vehicle, it's warm, it's safe, you can listen to your music, you don't have to talk to anyone because you're on the bus, but you might think it's inconvenient to bike, but you're getting out there, you're being active, you're like pumping your blood through your veins and your heart rate's increasing and you're getting that exercise, which is actually super convenient for your future, like convenient for your long life, Mm -hmm, you know?
2: Totally. And on that idea of convenience, he mentions um, people's excuses and everyone has reasons to not want to switch to biking and often they have to do with convenience or comfort, but really it's just a spectrum and it really made me think of my own limitations that I set for myself. Usually it's weather-based for biking because I try and ride most of the time, but as soon as it gets rainy enough, then I'll stop. But really there's no need to. That's all just kind of self-set limitations that we could keep pushing and, I, and his attitude towards those limitations kind of inspired me to question my own
1: i also want to reflect on what he says about being able to try out like trial a bike and if you buy it through them you get a rebate um i think that's awesome
2: i love that yeah and i I
1: want to hear like more schools doing that
2: schools and workplaces too i wonder if there's those programs out in for companies or workplaces around cities
1: yeah definitely a good way for organizations or bigger groups to get together and enact some kind of change or, or offer possibilities and opportunities for change.
2: Mm-hmm. Even just to take that first step for people, having bikes available kind of gets people's...
1: Gets the ball rolling. Gets
2: the ball rolling, yeah. Gets us off the ground at the start. And then once people are biking, they're more likely to want to continue and be comfortable with it and see the benefits firsthand. One thing I liked is Kyle coming in with the data, a detailed plan with arguments to back up everything that you're going in with.
1: Yeah, I feel like he's so researched. Obviously, that's how his mind operates.
2: But just kind of bringing that up as a way to emphasize that research shouldn't be prohibitive. He mentioned that YouTube's a good place to start. Like if you're into a topic, everyone has access to that. And that's somewhere where you can at least start the research. And if you're interested in it, you'll probably go down the rabbit hole and and follow things up and go in deeper. Like he has access to um, the UNBC libraries and catalogs and scholarly articles. But even if you don't have access to that, there's plenty of places anyone can start.
1: Yeah, and I want to plug the library. I'm like such a library fan. I understand not everybody has access to a computer in their home. If you feel like research is a bit of a barrier, yeah, YouTube and the library, accessible. Mm -hmm. I also want to touch on, like, he talks about a lot of the benefits that Paolo is also talking about or experiencing, and that is like cardiovascular, the benefits of physical exercise, uh, reduces noise and air pollution, and reduces road maintenance, reducing car ownership costs. With the prices rising, it's like becoming less accessible to own a car for especially for young people I find. Depending on where you live, but it seems like every Canadian city now is um starting to get, I don't know, like unreachable livings. Prohibitive.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also faster. I think that was brought up too. But that's a point I've been kind of hammering on this these last few years, especially living in Vancouver. More often than not, riding my bike somewhere is faster than driving, let alone finding parking and getting stuck in traffic, dealing with rush hour and road construction and all that. Biking is as fast, if not faster, a lot of the time, and along with all the other benefits.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree. that. And parking, parking is a big thing. Like.
2: <laughs> One other point, this idea of bike availability. So in Paolo's case, the university had a system set up where you could rent bikes and then which led to a rebate if you ended up wanting to buy it or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like that are important for people to get started, but then also things like bike repair Mm -hmm. availability. So I know in some cities there's co-op bike shops where you can go and there's kind of knowledgeable people who will help you repair your bikes Mm -hmm. and have a stock of used bike parts that come from discarded bikes and all that. And those are great because it's accessible to everyone. You don't feel like you need to be an expert on anything because that's what they're there for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, yeah, along with bikes being available, having like repair uh, systems available to people who might not know how to change a tire or Mm -hmm. you know fix their brakes um these sorts of things can make it a lot easier for people to start biking and and continue biking Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i feel like just plugging a couple in vancouver like kickstand Mm -hmm. and then our community bikes Mm -hmm. those are the ones i know about at least
2: i love it yeah yeah cool should we stop sure On this journey through BC, we've met some incredible youth with some amazing stories about things they're doing. It's been really inspiring seeing this generation take initiative on ecological and environmental issues. The Down to You podcast wouldn't be possible without our wonderful production team and funders. From the Fraser Basin Council Youth Program, we have Sonia Dodig, Hollis Nelson, Nicole Gonzalez-Filos, and Lindsay Sackett. Also, a big thanks to our collaborators, Vedluna Studio, Pendimental Sound Production, ZG Stories, and Maya lazar Mulabdic for her beautiful illustrations. This project was undertaken with the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Federal Department of Environment and Climate Change. Thank you, everyone, for listening.